0: We'll be looking at verses 1 through 10. I'm sorry, verses 4 and 5, but I'll read verses 1 through 10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, Oh, Lord, we just sang of your death and your work, conquering death, conquering the grave, rising again. And so, Lord, we ask now, would you work through your risen word? Would you work through your son? Would you work through the spirit? Lord, you know everyone in this room. You know grieving hearts. You know hardened hearts. You know proud hearts. We, you know broken hearts so lord would you come and through your word accomplish healing hope salvation it's in your son's name we pray amen well two weeks ago we learned about mankind's condition in the first three verses you know we humans were odd creatures for we all do the very things that we tell others they shouldn't do Every single society, not just a few, but every single society has laws, rules, and guidelines for people to live by, and yet, there are people who break those laws. Well, Paul gave us, in the first three verses, the diagnosis of our problem, the triggers that reveals our problem, and then the result from our problem. Paul diagnosed us as, I think maybe we need to turn the mic down just a little bit, diagnosed You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Paul calls us dead men walking, because due to sin, all of us are born spiritually dead. We may do spiritual activities, but true spirituality submits to Jesus, honors God and His Word, and wants to obey and worship Him with all of our life. It is a life. A true spiritual life is a life that doesn't focus on self but on God. Yet for every person our innate desire is to serve ourselves, which the Bible calls evil. Now we try to be clear, when we say we're dead in our sin, that does not mean we're as bad as we can be or that we're all equally bad. By God's common grace restraining our sin, we don't do every single wicked thing that goes in our hearts and is conscious the conscience he gave us helps us be moral. And yet, that gets to the heart of the issue because we can be very moral and still not honor God. As well, saying that we're dead in our sins is not to say that we're worthless. We're still made in God's image, crowned with glory and honor, though we've distorted God's image. And following Paul's diagnosis that we're dead in sins, he showed the triggers that reveal our sin and deadness the world, the flesh, and the devil. And the result of our dead spiritual condition was given in verse 3, we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That's not a popular message. Yet it is a sure and true message from God that the wages of sin is death. Now if we just ended there, verse 3 was the end of Paul's letter, then we would have a hopeless message. Yet it doesn't end there, because verse 4 begins with hope. But god our ultimate hope will never be found in anyone who is a mere human our condition is so bad that only god can fix us but why would god do that what does that even mean well that's what paul is telling us in these verses today in the first verse verse four we'll see god's riches of mercy due to his love and then in verse five god's mercy even when we were dead it begins with verse 4. But God being our only hope. And the problem is, if we don't grasp the gravity of our condition, then we'll always be suggesting cures that only try to ward off symptoms. Thus, if our human condition, as many say, is a sickness, maybe that's a mental health issue or only a chemical imbalance, then we can fix that with medication. Or if our deepest issue is just rebellion then we need to teach some behavior modification. Or if our root problems are economic, then we can alleviate it with wealth redistribution. Or if it's ignorance, if that's the problem with the world, if people are ignorant, well then we can fix it with education. Or, as others say, if it's laziness, well we just need to give people motivation. Now all of those in their own place have value. We do need medication at times. At times we do need to modify our behavior. Sometimes we need greater wealth or education or motivation. And yet none of those gets down to the very core of our problem. All of those deal with symptoms. And the problem is we are dead spiritually. Not mostly dead. Not like you died 30 seconds ago and they're working with the machine to shock your heart to bring you back to life. Dead, buried, and in the ground for a long time. Now, most doctors nowadays don't make house calls. That was the common practice in the past where you called the doctor and they came to you. Now, we all go to the doctor. Now, imagine if you called the doctor and said, Doctor, I need you to come to my grandma's house. And he was willing to do that. And you gave the address. And he drives there and then when he gets there. He calls you and goes, I think you gave me the wrong address. I'm at the cemetery. And you go, no, no, you're at the right place. Just drive up two lanes and take a left. You'll see us digging. And if he didn't turn around, he'd be surprised. But if he still came out and got there and you pry off the casket and go, so doctor, what can you do? He'd look at you and say, you're crazy. They're dead. I can't do anything to help your grandma. Only God can help her now. And that's the point. We are spiritually dead. No one can do anything unless God comes and helps us. And that's the point of the passage. And that, again, would be very discouraging, except for this fact that it says God is rich in mercy. In other words, God can not only do something for sinful humans, but God wants to do something. You know, in three other places in the Bible, God's character is described as rich or riches. Romans 2.4 Or do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Or Romans 11, 33, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments, and how inscrutable his ways. Or Philippians four nineteen, and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. You know, all of those verses, even the one here in Ephesians two, are highlighting that God is not stretched. He's not cajoled or barely able to show mercy. Kindness, forbearance, patience. Some actions really stretch people. You've probably known people, when they do something wrong, they sit there and they try and say, I'm... And they have the hardest words saying, Sorry, I was wrong. It's like the words have to be pried from their body. They can barely admit they've ever done anything wrong. They don't have riches of humility by which they can admit they've done something wrong sometimes parents will have a rebellious child and the child will get in so much trouble they get arrested and then the parent goes down to the courthouse the jail and they get their child out well they don't do that because they have riches of paying people's bonds but it's a parental obligation or sometimes a union employee does something that gets them in trouble with the boss and the union rep comes and helps them they do it not because they have riches of love for the other union members. It's their contractual union obligation. But God, out of the abundance of his riches, eagerly lavishes mercy, forgiveness, and love on us. He's not forced to. He's not under a contract and he goes, "Oh, Well, I signed up. I guess I got to go and make a plea for this dumb union person who did that thing again. God wants to show mercy. That's why Micah 7.18 says, Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgressions for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. Or James 2.13, For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. God does not delight judgment the Bible never describes God as being rich in judgment or rich in wrath but rather as rich in mercy you know we can be forced to be merciful you need to go be nice to your brother God is never forced to be nice to people Dane Ortland writes whether we've been sinned against or have sinned ourselves into misery the Bible says God is not tight-fisted with mercy but open-handed, not frugal, but lavish, not poor, but rich. That God is rich in mercy means that your regions of deepest shame and regret are not hotels through which divine mercy passes, but homes in which divine mercy abides. And this is how God describes himself. You may remember Exodus chapter 34. Moses says, God, will you show yourself to me? And God says, I cannot show you my glory, but I could pass by. And you could see the after effects. And when he does that, God declares, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin. But who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. So yes, God does declare that he is just, and he will not allow the guilty to go unpunished. He does show that he is anger, but he is slow to anger. The first thing, though, God declares about himself, the thing he is quick to, the thing that he has riches of, is mercy and grace. What do you think of when you think of God? What do you consider him, her, it, to be? God declares himself to be a being of mercy, one who delights in mercy. Sometimes people harbor suspicions that may really God is cruel and mean. We listened to a testimony this morning in which a person was wondering, Well, if God sends tornadoes, maybe he's mean and cruel. Maybe he's only begrudgingly nice. Well, do you see that God is a God of mercy? Do you rest on his mercy, or do you think you do fine on your own? Well, Paul expands that God delights in mercy. He says in verse 4, Because of the great love with which God loved us. It's an intriguing question. What compels god to act when we rebelled against god the only thing god had to do was judge righteously god was under no moral obligation to send his son the only thing he had to do was give the right verdict and execute the punishment yet because of god's love he showed us mercy and promised a savior this is what jesus told Nicodemus that night when Nicodemus came to him and Jesus told him for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but in order that the world might be saved through him now if we've not come to grips with our condition then we hear of God's love and we go eh I mean, of course God loves us. We're Americans. I mean, we're wonderful. God loves everyone. Yes, we just read of God's love in John 3.16, but we have to consider everything the Bible says. Psalm five five says, The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. Or Psalm 11.5, The Lord tests the righteous, but His soul hates the wicked, and the one who loves violence, thus God does have a great love for all people, and yet He hates the sinner. How do those mix? well, a good place to start in considering this is Jesus' prayer in John seventeen John seventeen is the night in which Jesus was betrayed, and he's meeting with his disciples the last Supper, and he gives a prayer in john seventeen and in that prayer, jesus said, "I'm praying for them." Now, who's Jesus praying for? It says, I am praying not only for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. So Jesus makes clear that he's praying for a specific group of people, those who will one day trust him, those that the father has given him. And we spent some time on that in Ephesians 1. So yes, Jesus has a concern for all people, and yet he has a greater concern for those who will trust him. And he shows that by saying, I'm going to make a specific prayer just for those people. And Jesus will go on to say in that prayer that God's love for his children will be like his love for Jesus. So yes, though God has a love for everyone, there's a distinction in his love that his love for mankind is not the same love that he has for those who trust him because that love is like the love he has for his one and only son. The Father will send people to hell. The love for them, which He does have, is not the same as the love He has for His children. Analogies fall apart, but the difference might be seen in the love I have for the children I coach at soccer and my own children. Well, yes, I love all the children I coach, but there's a great distinction in my love for them and my own children on the team. And even there, there's a distinction between my love for my children And my love for Sarah. Yes, you can use the word love for all of them, but there's a variance. God does have a generic love for all people, but he has a unique, particular, and saving love for his adopted children. And knowing that our hope for salvation is all of God, it's but God, nothing we can do should bring us great encouragement. Since it is all of God, then there's nothing we can do to lose it. Our faith wavers. Our love for God is fickle. Yet Christ's faithfulness never changes. And His love is constant. Thus we sing, When I fear my faith will fail. What's the next line? Christ will hold me fast. It's not, well, I'll try harder. When the tempter would prevail, He will hold me fast. I could never keep my hold through life's fearful path. For my love is often cold. He must hold me fast. And we could go on with the rest of that song, but that is our hope. Not that we're clinging to God, we're dead in our sins, but that God reached down and clung to us. When you've had small children, you've probably gone places where there's crowds, and you want to make sure in this crowd we don't lose them. And so. The child doesn't want to lose you too, so they grip your hand. And they think, I'm going to hold on to my parents' hand. But the grip that matters is not the child's grip on the parent. It's the firm grasp the parent has on the child. That's the grip that's going to get them home. And it's the grip the Father has on us. His love that will get us home. Not our love for Him. And the amazing thing though is that God showed this mercy. God showed this love when we were still dead that's the next point god's mercy even when we were dead verse 5 god showed us his love even when we were dead in our trespasses the great lie of satan is god will love you if you first show yourself lovable you know if you first go clean yourself up get your life in order well then god will love you that's what satan wants you to believe And yet, as one hymn says, "...let not conscience make you linger, nor of fitness fondly dream. All the fitness He requires is to feel your need for Him." You know, we come to God as needy, as poor, as wretched, or as it says here, dead in our sin. We have nothing to give to God. Our hands come not bringing gifts. Our hands come open having to receive gifts from him what his hands give us yet the amazing thing is god accepts us when we come in that humble admittance you may remember the parable in luke 18 jesus tells of two men who went up to the temple to pray the first the tax collector sorry the first the pharisee the religious one who they would have thought well he must really be loved by god and he goes in saying all the things he's done for god and how he hasn't done all these horrible things and then a tax collector comes in one who they considered the scum of their society, someone who was clearly a sinner, and he comes in and he says it says this. He would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, "God be merciful to me, a sinner." Jesus then declared, "I tell you, this man, the tax collector, went down to his house justified, rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled." But the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So our only hope is to cry out for mercy. To cry out saying, look, we have no hope except you. And know that God gives hope when we turn to Christ for that mercy. Thus by realizing your sin and God's mercy, you can have hope even in the worst of sins. We read earlier Psalm 51, the Psalm David penned after he committed adultery and then abused his power in a cover-up to kill the husband. And David began his prayer with, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. David didn't come with more promises. David didn't say, Look, I'm going to come. I'm going to devote myself to doing good now. He didn't say, Okay, I'm going to go start doing all this religious stuff. And that's what we do. We've said, okay, I'm going to commit myself. I'm going to do more Bible reading. I'm going to be more faithful. I can do it. And yet David just appeals to God for mercy. In fact, David says in verses 16 and 17, For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. God wants to be merciful, He delights to be merciful. All we must do is be broken and contrite about our sinful condition and turn to God's mercy given to us in Christ. It's God's mercy that scared Jonah. You may remember as Keith preached, Jonah at the end declares why he didn't want to go down to Tarshish or why he fled to Tarshish away from Nineveh. Well, I don't want to go there, God, because I know that you're merciful and gracious. And you're going to forgive these people. I don't want you to forgive. He knew God's character. God is the type of God who wants to show mercy. Paul explains it in Titus 3.5. He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. That's why it's so ironic to go into a bookstore and find a section that says Christian self-help. There could be no more greater oxymoron. The first thing a Christian admits is, I can't do it myself. There is no self-help I can give to take care of my problem. It is all God help. God is my only hope. We are quite different. We often love others because there's something in them that's attractive. God loves us because He is love. Or another way of saying that is, God loves us because He loves us. Now that might sound circular. It might sound like nonsense. But God does not love us due to some quality about us. Yes, we were made in God's image. But that's all the more reason that He's upset. Because we've distorted His image to the world. This is why in Deuteronomy 7, 7-8, when God's explaining to Israel His love for them, He says, It was not because you were more in number, than any other people that the Lord set His love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that He swore to His fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery. Paul says it this way in Romans five: For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, even that while we're still sinners, Christ died for us. Now, notice something important. I think I've often gotten this wrong. God does not love us because of Jesus. Rather, because he loves us, he sent Jesus. And if God loved you when a sinner, then you don't have to worry about that love ever being taken away. Notice something important here. There's no division in God. Sometimes people get the impression that, well, the Father, He's really into this judgment thing. But then there's Jesus. He's into that mercy thing. And you know what? He keeps showing those nail-pierced hands to the Father. And the Father goes, okay, I'll forgive that one too, I guess. No, it says right here, Romans 5, but God shows His love. And that that while we're still sinners, Christ died for us. The Father shows mercy. The Son shows mercy. Both. The whole Trinity wants to save us. And the point here is that God showed us that love even when we were still rebellious. Even when we were dead sinners. In other words, God does not love you because you're rich or poor, attractive or ugly, because you're born to Christian parents or you're born to non-Christians, because you're moral or immoral. God loves you because God is love. And He wants you to know not just His general love for mankind, but His specific love for those who trust in Christ. Now, these ideas really run quite contrary to our culture's thinking that treats, think that God treats us all the same. And the best thing someone could ever do for you is just affirm how wonderful you are. John Carson, in his excellent book, The Difficult Doctrine of the Love of God, writes, Picture Charles and Susan walking down a beach, hand in hand. They've kicked off their sandals, and the wet sand squishes between their toes. Charles turns to Susan, gazes into her eyes and says, Susan, I love you. I really do. Well, what does he mean? Well, the least he means is something like this. Susan, you mean everything to me. I can't live without you. Your smile melts me from 50 yards away. Your sparkling good humor... Your beautiful eyes, the scent of your hair, everything about you transfixes me. I love you. What he most certainly does not mean is something like this. Susan, quite frankly, you have such a bad case of bad breath it embarrassed a herd of unwashed, garlic-eating elephants. Your nose is, is so bulbous, you belong in cartoons. Your hair is so greasy, it could lubricate an 18-wheeler. Your knees are so disjointed, you make a camel look elegant. Your personality makes the tail of the Hun and Genghis Khan look like wimps but I love you. The point is, now God comes to us and says, I love you. What does He mean? Does He mean something like this? You mean everything to me. I can't live without you. Your personality, your witty conversation, your beauty, your smile, everything about you transfixes me. Heaven would be boring without you. I love you. That is, after all, pretty close to what some therapeutic, therapeutic, Approaches to the love of God spell out. We must be pretty wonderful because God loves us. And dear old God, He's pretty vulnerable, finding Himself in a dreadful state unless we say yes to His love. Well, not at all. When God says He loves us, does not God mean something like the following? Morally speaking, you are the people of the bad breath, the bulbous nose, the greasy hair, the disjointed knees, the abominable personality. Your sins have made you disgustingly ugly, but I love you anyways. Not because you're attractive, but because it is my nature to love. So friends, when we despair over our past deeds, over how we just acted, know there is a God who loves you. We're prone to say, well, yes, I know, but I did it again. I don't deserve His forgiveness again. And yet the problem with that thinking is, is it's implicitly saying, well, I deserve the forgiveness the first 150 times, but at 151, I no longer deserve God's forgiveness. I'm no longer worthy of it. Well, no, from the first sin to the 151st iteration of that sin, you were always unworthy of His love. And He delights to show that love. God is the type of being who knows every single thing about you, and he still showed his love by sending Jesus while we were still sinners. You know, in contrast to that, most people were not prone to love those who were rebellious against us, who were hostile against us. I've mentioned a few times I help out the little rec soccer league here in town. And because we're a rec league, there's a rule everyone has to play 50% of the game. In some games, it's more important, so they keep track of that. We were at a meeting this last week trying to determine, well, how can we keep track of this in a way that's easy? And one person raised their hand and said, well, I know what we could do. Just have a parent from both teams just sit next to each other in chairs and keep track of this time. And everyone in the room burst out laughing. And one of them said, you don't know the teams out here. They hate each other. Now, we're talking about kids ages 9... 213, who kick a little inflated ball around on a rectangle. And it's so important that two grown adults can't sit in a chair with a pad and write, Player went in at eight minutes. Arrgh. How? We can't even treat people in something that doesn't matter with kindness. And yet we think, oh yeah, God's just merciful. God's always kind. God is so unlike us god delights to show mercy your god response is not the response we have he loves us he sent his son to die for us god loves us so what is god like god is love and i know for many of us as soon as we hear that we think well our culture has so twisted that phrase it's so disfigured it it doesn't even mean anything it's like when you get your camera out and you can put those features on so you have like the big bug eyes or your head is stretched all along and you take the picture and the kids, oh, look, you got bug eyes. And you're like, well, that's me, but it's not really me. Well, that's the way our culture has treated God's love. It's been so distorted, like, well, yes, God's love, but not like that. And we can be so busy arguing against that that we don't stop and go, but God actually is love. Yes, there's distortions of that. But God is love. He's merciful. And people crave love. You know, people crave knowing that other people accept them. You know, this is why one of people's biggest fears is public speaking. What's everyone going to think about me? How did I, did I say everything right? And yet the only being that matters in the universe loves you. You know, what do you think is the best thing that could happen to you? a promotion perfect health popularity maybe you could win the lottery someone won 2 billion this last week you know what is the best thing that could happen to you the best thing that could happen to you is that the god of the universe would set his love on you all those other things pale in comparison and this love occurs when we were dead in our sins when we were still actively rebelling on it against him in fact he loves us and has compassion on us due to our sin earlier hosea 11 was read and i don't know if you caught everything he was saying But it says in verses 7 through 9 my people are bent on turning away from me and though they call out to the most high i shall he shall not raise them up at all so god is saying look their sins they're making a wedge but then right after that he says how can i hand you over israel my heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am not for I am God and not a man, the holy one in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. Again, there's we have to recognize this distinction. God's not saying that to everyone, but to his people our sin, yes, he judges us temporarily, but he has compassion. He says I will not keep Pouring out judgment. We serve, we know, and love a God who is rich in mercy, a God who loves us. Do you know this God? Have you come to grips with His amazing love and mercy for you? Or are all of these questions seemingly irrelevant to what's really important for the rest of this week, for today? Yes, God's important, but honestly, there's a big list of things I've got to get done. Those are very pressing concerns. And life can be very rushed, very chaotic, and everything is going on. But as you come to grips with knowing who God is, the compass of your life gets directed to true north. And everything takes its proper perspective. You know, our family likes to watch a show in which there's a detective who's a little neurotic about everything being just perfectly in place. And this last week we watched an episode in which he was gagged with several others in a room as two people escaped from jail. And then he recognizes that there is a knife and he scoots his chair over and with his bound hands he kind of grips it and he starts to turn and everyone starts gurgling for excitement through their gags. Oh, we're going to get cut free! Except he keeps turning and he sees a blind and he uses the knife to get the blind to be straight because it was bothering him that the blind was crooked. You There, he had a knife that could set them all free, and what he's being concerned about is a blind. And we laugh, and yet that's often all of us. We're concerned about all these secondary things, and yet there's a God who loves us. We're turning to straighten blinds when the God of the universe says, I love you. Why are you focusing on the blind? Look at me. And so God's amazing love and mercy has been shown to rebels. Won't you come to this one who wants to show you that deep saving love? If you do know him, let's praise this amazing God. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, may that be the song of our heart. Of your wonderful, your amazing love for us. Lord, there are many wonderful gifts you've given us in this world, but may we not allow those gifts to get our eyes off the giver. You who love us, who show mercy and kindness day in and day out. You are our hope, our strength, our joy. It's in your Son's name we pray. Amen.